it is this phenomena or this characteristic, this underlying bedrock that is not spoken about enough because it's taken for granted inside the baseball game, inside the Silicon Valley community. And people outside the community don't even know it exists. And so it's really great that we're able to unearth that. That is the purpose of this podcast. And why we were especially keen to speak to you, Casey, is what we see is we have in general in tech, probably the largest gap between those who do it well and the average or the median quality of execution of any industry. So the median tends to be poor, the best tends to be the best and the newer, the discipline within tech, the more that is true. We all know how expensive software engineers are, and that's why it makes sense to give them the best tools to be as productive as possible. At Google, there was an entire division devoted to developer tooling and developer productivity. Now with SourceGraph, you can give your engineers the same superpowers that Google software engineers get. SourceGraph is a code intelligence platform that provides tools like code search, advanced analytics, and bulk refactoring. Check them out at sourcegraph.com slash the startup podcast. You're listening to The Startup Podcast, a show focused on helping you build, run, and invest in Silicon Valley-style startups. Whether you're an investor, founder, or operator in a startup, you'll gain insights on the principles that power high-growth disruption the way Facebook, Google, and Uber do it. The conversation starts now. I'm Yanib, a recovering software engineer who loves building high-performing organizations. I have worked at Google and a number of scale-ups, and am now co-founder at Circular, a high-growth startup. And I'm Chris. I've been building products and startups for over 20 years, including 10 years in Silicon Valley. I work with startups as a strategic advisor and help them avoid landmines and fast-forward to the best high-growth outcomes as quickly as possible. Our job on this show is to guide you through the unique mindset and approach that drives Silicon Valley-style disruption at scale. And on today's episode, we have a special guest, Casey Winters. He's the Chief Product Officer at Eventbrite and an advisor to many companies about how to scale and sustainably grow their business. He's one of the rock stars in the product and growth landscape based out of Silicon Valley, and we're super excited to have him on the show. So Casey, welcome, and maybe just briefly tell everybody a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm currently the Chief Product Officer at Eventbrite, where I manage the product management, design, research, and growth marketing teams. I've been doing that for about three and a half years. I used to lead the growth team at Pinterest, and I was there from 40 million monthly actives to 150 million monthly actives. And I started the marketing team at Grubhub. I actually started my career as an analyst at apartments.com. And I've done a lot of uh, advising in between of uh, you know, marketplaces, user-generated content products, that's usually been my focus area. And I'm really passionate about all things product and growth strategy. I've built a few programs at Reforge that help teach some of the frameworks that have helped me in my career. So that's generally me. So I thought I'd start with the obvious question of what is growth? And I've felt that growth is one of those terms that suffers from a type of semantic exhaustion. And what I mean by that is who doesn't like growth? It's one of those things that's very easy to latch onto. And so in the time since the discipline, I guess, has become more common, it has come to mean more and more different things, whatever it is that people want it to mean. And I feel that's a pity because there's some real insight in the original thinking about growth as a discipline and as an approach to building a product. So I was wondering, Casey, if you could share some of your thoughts and your observations about that and what is at the core of growth to you? 
Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And I think anytime a word gets buzzy over time, it gets attached to, you know, every every title, every strategy, right? So every marketer just changed their name to growth something, you know, over the last decade, which is not really the idea. So, you know, this was something I had to work on at Pinterest, which was the first time, you know, I officially had growth in my title. We didn't we didn't have that term back when I was at GrowthHub or Apartments.com. But the the mission we landed on is that it was our job to connect people to the value of the product that's already been built. That could be you're bringing new users into the product and showing them to it. It could be you're getting people who've already brought in to the product to see more of the value that's there by, you know, reducing friction or, you know, you know, positioning it better or whatever, or it could be increasing engagement of, you know, people that already are getting some value of the product, but they haven't really unlocked the full potential that they could get out of the product. So all of those things that are not building new value into the product, but getting the maximum usage of the value that other teams have built is how I think about growth. And there are lots of different, you know, tactics that you can use underneath to drive that. But that's really the core mission for me. And just to disentangle things a little bit more, when I hear about growth and people talking about it, there are kind of two things that come through to me. One is if you look at the traditional marketing funnel, there's a strong sense of mid funnel, mid to late funnel. You know, you're going from you've brought people onto the site or, you know, to your product and you're trying to get them to activate in whatever sense you mean that. And often there are a lot of techniques that can be used there. So that's one important aspect of growth. But the other one that I see, and you know, I'd love to dive into a bit more is that it's about breaking down silos. And growth sits in this weird position where it's between marketing and product or rather less between and more about connecting those things and saying that seeing marketing and product as two separate functions that don't need to interact is harmful to the customer journey and then ultimately to the success of the product and the business. So how do we marry those two sides of growth in practice? Yeah, I agree. The the funnel almost exacerbates the issue as a concept of saying, oh, well, you own the top in marketing and we own the bottom in product. And then when, you know, the product doesn't activate enough users, you're like, well, marketing sent me bad users. And, uh, you know, then when, um, you know, marketing doesn't hit its goals, it's like, oh, well, the product isn't good enough to refer, you know, people's friends to it. Uh, so we actually don't think about funnels. Um, we think about loops uh, in growth, which is, you know, if I let's let's take an example from Pinterest, usually easier to concept. If I take a board that someone has built in inside of Pinterest, right? Of let's say you know women's fashion, and I distribute that to Google as the, as the company, and then people from Google who are interested in women's fashion come in and they view that board and they sign up and then they create their own board, and then we distribute that board back to Google to acquire more new users. That's a self-reinforcing loop. So a lot of what we're trying to build on growth teams is what does the entire loop look like? How do we instrument all of it? What are the bottlenecks in that loop? And I don't care if it's spending money on marketing. I don't care if it's changing the product, whatever it is that unconstrains that part of the loop that isn't working or not working as well as it could is the type of problem that we're gonna swarm onto, right? So what that means from a process perspective is we try to build cross-functional teams at the core. I want people that can swarm any problem. I want product managers. I want engineers. I want designers. I want marketers. I want analysts. You want to have all the skill sets working together on that same problem, which is usually optimizing a loop 
or optimizing a growth model, which might be a series of different loops that connect together. If you're, you know, a larger business, like, like an event, right. Right. That's 16 years old, but that's really the idea behind, um, breaking down those silos is you want, you're not sure what the skill set that's required up front to unconstrained growth. And if you're saying, well, only marketing is in charge of growth. And the real issue with growth is that the onboarding flow is too hard to get through and it requires a bunch of product changes to uh, fix that. Marketing's not going to be able to fix that. They're going to beg product managers for resources that they're not going to get uh, because that's not the product manager's goal. And you're going to just stick with that problem, you know, for the long term, right? So, so that's what we really try to break down. And I think what led to some of that is... Um, when you think about, you know, product management or marketing, uh, you know, 15 years ago or, or, or so, um, product management started to be all about like craft and experience and, you know, um, how polished does this thing look and, and feel and marketing started, you know, leveraging much more on like brand that do I have amazing ads like Apple or Nike? And then in between, there's just all this important work that's a little bit more scientific uh, around, well, how does, how does the brand you promise connect to the actual products you deliver and how do we get everyone set up for that long-term value? And just no one was working on it. Uh, so a lot of my um, you know, peers in growth were just people that got annoyed by that gap and started going, fixing the emails or... <laughs> actually optimizing the onboarding flow for once or uh trying to make the logged out version of the site work for seo and all of a sudden you see like these massive metrics wins that uh make the company grow much larger and then of course when ceos see that they want a lot more and ask how i see we've um and you've alluded to this in your answers already but we found it very useful in this show to talk about what something is not and you've talked very eloquently about what it is and you've touched on a little bit of what it's not loops not funnels a cross-functional team, not marketing or product. But can you give us some more examples of cases where you've seen people call themselves growth or they've called their activity growth, but it's not growth? Some of the things I've seen in the last few years is people who would have traditionally been called demand gen marketers have growth in their title. People who are actually in sales have growth in their title. People who are actually working on things that aren't like super measurable have growth in their title and you want to be careful with, you know, losing the plot on what you're trying to do here and what skill sets you're trying to build and be careful from a recruiting perspective. If you're actually a, you know, a startup founder looking for someone that can have a, you know, a Liam Neeson particular set of skills, right? And now you have thousands of people saying, well, that's me. And then actually some of them are in sales and some of them I are in marketing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all of them are Spartacus, right? Some of yeah. them are product management. So what we, you know, really try to do in the industry is, is define like, okay, what's, what's your core set of skills? Like, do you know how to run experiments inside the product? Uh, do you, you have particular expertise in the types of things that typically drive growth inside of a startup, like optimizing the onboarding experience or our SEO or virality or conversion optimization? Uh, or, you know, um, emails and notifications or building out engagement strategies like loyalty programs or, or games and side products, right? Um, those are probably like the core things that are included in growth. There's some health 
to that extrapolation into skill sets that we wouldn't normally consider the typical growth skill set. And it is reorienting the rest of the business around ultimately the job of any person at a startup is to grow the value of the company. Um, so people explicitly connecting to that term, uh, there's some good qualities about that, um, that I like, right. And it's also going to enable, I think the further breaking down of silos as we move into more and more business models, adapting this approach, like for example, more recently, traditional, like this concept of growth as a team and as people with those sorts of titles started in hardcore consumer products, right? Like Facebook was the first you know, team to really be named that, right? Like Pinterest was one of the early growth teams. Uh, we didn't have that name at Grubhub, but we definitely operated, you know, in a lot of that manner. Um, but as it's moved into, into B2B, uh, the approach was kind of like, I'm going to do this instead of the things we were doing to drive growth in B2B, which is usually sales, right? And there were some mm -hmm. um, pretty cool experiments around that of like, you know, Dropbox and how they grew and Slack and how they grew. Um, but I think it hid the bigger opportunity, which, which the next generation is starting to unlock now, which is, well, if I actually have salespeople and marketers and PMs and engineers all working on the growth model, all working on a loop that might include marketing and include personal touch points via sales and include some trial of the product before they talk to a human, then I could just optimize the most efficient way to grow this business long-term and People are trying to brand that a little bit now with like product-led sales and product-led growth before it. I don't really care about the branding, but like if that concept can be added into a growth model that worked pretty well before it existed, which, which was like enterprise sales, then those businesses will be able to grow even faster and more profitably. So there's some, there's some nice qualities to everyone trying to attach growth to their title. But if and only if it means we're approaching growth from no matter where you sit in the organization, how does the growth model of the business work and how can we optimize it and make it more effective over time, whether that skill set is through sales, through marketing, through product, through engineering, through design. Um, that's the thing I would like us to focus on. Um, mm. And we don't always do that. So I'll disagree with you very slightly, Casey, which is that you said you don't care about the branding or what it's called. And going back to my initial question is that I actually think it is important because there's a huge amount of confusion out there and what I'd love to dive into a bit more is when I read your content or listen to you on podcasts or read Brian Balfour or Eric Reese or any of the thinkers on growth, and it all makes so much perfect sense. And then you go back to your organization and try to implement it in some sense to say, you know, we want to do that more. It gets really complex. And I, I feel like, at least to my view, there isn't a well-articulated implementation playbook. We can sometimes talk a little bit around, like, this is what growth is, but where does it fit into an organization? How does it work with marketing? How does it work with engineering? When we say cross-functional teams, does that simply mean we have a team and we say this team is growth? And, you know, that, then there's, of course, we start talking about that term growth hacking, which I know a lot of folks don't like. I don't know where you feel about that, which is... I, I, I dislike it as well. That's, I suspected you would, but it, it often speaks to this toolkit of techniques around experimentation and around these growth loops. But I, I guess what I'd say is, and I speak both of someone who's tried to implement it at a scale-up as someone who's tried to implement it at a startup, and also as someone who's spoken to a lot of other folks, the implementation gap between the idea of growth and having growth working 
effectively within your organization is, is really big. So one thing that I'd personally love to learn from you, and I'm sure our audience would benefit from immensely, is to talk a little bit about what does this actually look like in practice? So when you have a marketing team, you, you have an engineering team, you have a product team, and then you say, we want growth as a discipline. We want to think about growth loops. We want to make sure that we build access to value, reduce friction, virality, and so on. We build that into the product and that we integrate that with our marketing. It all makes perfect sense on paper. How do we turn that into a functioning organizational habit? Yeah, a great question and, and certainly a meaty one. It depends on when you're doing it and who's there when you're attempting to do it. So like a lot of things like addressing technical debt or, uh, you know, building your culture, it's easy to do it up front. It's a lot harder to go retrofit it later. Um, so, you know, the startups that are coming out today can more natively build some of these concepts in from day one with the founders, whereas, you know, 10, 30 year old companies, it can be a pretty huge lift to start thinking in a different way and, and change a, a lot of the elements of your company. But I'd say the, the normal, uh, way I would go about this with a company that like I advise, right, is okay. Start thinking about. How do we get these different teams to work together instead of have siloed goals? So the first step is, okay, what's the problem we want to work on? We want to work on, you know, this problem in growth. Well, let's have a thesis around what area of it that it's going to be. Is it going to be improving conversion? Is it going to be uh, improving onboarding? Is it going to be, you know, becoming more viral? Whatever that case may be. Uh, the first step is to get people from different teams to align on the same goal. Have, you know, if you use OKRs, let them have the same OKRs and build a team where, you know, if I'm the head of engineering, you're the head of design, we don't need to change the org structure around this, but we have someone on our team from design, from engineering, from product, whoever, that's joining this cross-functional team. They still report into the same people, but they feel like their main team are their peers in the other functions working on the same problem with the same goal. And that's what we had at Pinterest. That's what we have at Eventbrite. And so you have this cross-functional team of different skill sets. They're focused on the same exact OKRs or, or goals, mm -hmm. whatever type of structure you have there. And the reason I like that is it helps change us as the leaders into buying into that shared goal. If we were a little bit more siloed than we should have been in the past, the fact that our teams are working, you know, as one along the same goal will get us to align more um, and then get the entire, you know, hopefully organization over time to really deeply understand why teams are working on what they're working on, why the impact they're having is great for the company. So usually what I start with teams is like, all right, well, let's try to get one cross-functional team together to work on a growth problem and see if they can make progress. And a lot of times the area they're in it, or they've chosen to work on is something that hasn't been touched much because product's been building new features, marketing's been doing campaigns, whatever. And you can have a pretty massive impact early on. One of my early experiments at Pinterest had a 50% improvement in conversion rate from SEO. It's not because it was that brilliant. It's just because no one had ever touched that area before, right? Um, so you, you can get a lot of those types of things. Um, and then people are like, oh, that's interesting. What happened there? What, you know, how can I get more of that, right? Um, so that's, that's usually the place I like to start. Um, there are alternative approaches. 
um, depending on the structure, right? So if I'm advising um, a team and they've got product market fit and, and they're ready to grow or they've, are, they're already growing organically, but they also have like a lot of core product to build out. Uh, like maybe they don't even have an iOS app yet. They need that. Or, you know, they, there's some other critical piece of functionality they need to build. Um, expecting the leaders of engineering and product and marketing to spend time on that problem, as well as we'll also grow the product market fit we have can be a little bit much. Mm. So in that case, instead of having that cross-functional team where, you know, all the executives have like, you know, a, a director underneath them or whatever, uh, you know, uh, jumping in and aligning, um, that's when you look at the VP of growth sort of title where it becomes a separate function. Again, not my preferred structure. I like to get everyone at the company bought in on how we're growing the business, but sometimes it, you just have a lot of other core functionality to build out saying to someone, Hey, go get more users for what we have, go get more adoption for what we have, go reduce friction with the product we have. Um, and we'll eventually have more product value for you to help get more users for, um, but in the interim, I want you to just like run at, gr at growing this problem. And in that case, they might have engineers, designers, PMs, marketers report directly up to them, right? Um, this tends not to last as a strategy in, you know, mm. two to three years. Um, usually that growth team will get subsumed back into the functional organization. Uh, Facebook is the only example I could think of where this hasn't happened um, of other people that have tried it but can be really valuable short to midterm um, and, and feel it makes you feel as a founder, like you've got just way more throughput. Uh, the challenge with the approaching that as like your plan A is when you have a VP of growth that's incentivized to grow quickly and run fast, what they are not incentivized to do is build alignment with other executives and other employees at the company. So they can do some things that may not appear strategically sound, or, you know, may not meet the brand guidelines or all of these kind of things. And then what, what tends to happen, and I've seen it happen multiple times, is the rest of the company kind of just mutinies against it. Um, and that ultimately does more harm long term because you're trying to, as, as you mentioned earlier, you're trying to instill this new philosophy on how we can scalably and more profitably grow. And you didn't get the company to buy into it. You put up a bunch of great metrics wins, right, um, that aren't well explained, uh, that Maybe people don't trust you optimize short term for long term super well, right? Um, and that's where you can run into problems. Uh, uh, it's like the uh, the turkey in uh, Nassim Taleb's book. Uh, I think it was Black Swan, where it's like the life of a turkey just like yeah. gets better and better and better until Thanksgiving and then, Day, and then its yeah. head gets chopped off. Um, so that can happen to heads of growth if they're not spending a lot of their time keeping the company up to date on why what they're doing is working and sustainable for the long term versus a bunch of unsustainable hacks that look good in the short term and might be, you know, bad in the long term. Yeah. So if you're suggesting that a dedicated VP of growth is at best, maybe a temporary solution to a company misalignment, are you then suggesting that in a perfect ideal world, each and every PM and cross-functional team actually just has growth embedded in their DNA and is just like asking the question, how do we get more users to get more value from the thing we have instead of running around trying to build more and more and more features? Is that the ideal world? Well, I think there's two ways to think about it. And I'm 
unlike some other people in my space, I wouldn't exactly be prescriptive that either that one is better than the other. One way of doing it is as you're setting up your different cross-functional teams, and let's just focus on like the developer side of things like engineering product design. Um, the way we structured at Pinterest is one of those, you know, pillars or themes was growth, right? And that's the one I worked on and I had, you know, an engineering peer and a design peer and analytics and all that kind of stuff. And then we had squads, you know, underneath focus on different areas of growth, like acquisition, you know, activation. Um, but then the other, uh, themes were related to our value props, discovering content, saving content, doing things that you find on Pinterest and those uh, what we would call pillars are there to build new value into the product growth, not building new value into the product, connecting more people to the existing value. So if anything, the discovery team did, or the, or the save team did found product market fit or, or feature product fit, that would be another tool in the toolbox of the growth team to then deepen engagement or improve activation to the overall product suite. Right? So that's one way to handle it. Another way to handle it is to basically train your teams, you know, in engineering and product management, et cetera, more about the full product life cycle, which mm -hmm. is, you know, whether you're building a feature or whether you're building a brand new product, there is the effort to go from zero to one, like nothing exists and you build something and you're trying to get it to feature product fit or product market fit if it's an entire product, right? And then once you have product market fit, you're incentivized to grow the usage of it, which is, you know, growth, right? Um, and as you're growing the product, uh, or growing the feature, you're going to make, you want to make some improvements to it as well, right? So you're, you're not just going to want to oh maximize usage, you're going to, you know, make changes, add things to it that make it more powerful. Um, and then eventually you'll saturate how much you can grow that and need to go back to the zero to one phase again and build a totally new product, right? So the dream, you know, as a product leader is that I can train my PMs to be able to go through that entire life cycle effectively. The reality today is all PMs are better at one of those life phases of the life cycle than the other. Some are great at zero to one. Some are really great at growth. Some are really great at, you know, building new features. Um, some are great at the technical scaling elements. Like how do we make sure this thing will work at a thousand X users, right? And not, not completely break. Um, and I think that's always going to be the case. So it's a question of more of like, can you raise the floor of how they are at every part of the life cycle while, you know, hopefully they have a superpower in one of them, right? So my superpower is probably always going to be in growth, but I spent a lot of my time at Eventbrite on these other areas because they're important to the business and I lead the overall product. They don't just lead, you know, growth, right? So we're in this, you know, early phase of um, companies have gone through now multiple phases of the life cycle product leaders or growth leaders have gone through the phase, the phases themselves. So like a common issue that a growth leader might find is I'm in charge of growing the number of users of this overall product. And then I can't really do it anymore because what I need is a totally new product to get to the next S curve of growth, right? What's a growth leader going to do in that situation? Not much until they, you got something else to let them optimize, right? Um, so, you know, uh, that what that growth leader should do is a year and a half before that's about to happen, say, hey, I think we're about to ask him to here. I'm going to go work on a new product or I'm going to put pressure on the organization to make sure they have a new product that when this thing really asks them to, it's the next S-curve is ready for me. Um, and those are the types of conversations that 
you know, as engineering and product leaders um, and design leaders, you want to be having inside teams, inside pillars, and then, you know, at the leadership level uh, very regularly. Mm. So to go back to your question, um, Pinterest was very much a like, oh, you got something new for me? Throw it over the wall. I'll figure out how to use it to get more users. Um, but also Pinterest was a network effect business. So generally new stuff doesn't matter that much than just more people saving content. So the focus was, oh yeah, you got a new tool for me. I'll take a look at it. But like the broader strategy isn't going to change that much because it's about getting more content, getting more users, and then our recommendations are better. Our engagement is, you know, deeper, all that kind of stuff. If you're not a network effects business, then it's more likely that your growth team is going to actually put pressure on the core product team to say like, oh yeah, can you like actually build a feature that like makes this thing work better in Brazil? Cause then I can go get, you know, 10 million extra paid accounts or whatever, or whatever the case may be. So there's differences depending on the type of product you're building. The network effect businesses, you know, the, the user base or the selection is the feature. So you tend to invest less in strengthening the core product over time and just focus more on getting more in the case of Grubhub restaurants, right? Or in the case of Pinterest, people saving content. Um, and then for businesses that are less network effect oriented, um, you're not only going to build more feature sets to strengthen the product, you're going to build that second zero to one product typically a lot quicker. As you were speaking, I noticed something interesting, which is, you know, you, you're a chief product officer. Chris's background is in product. Mine is in engineering originally. I think the concept of the cross-functional product team, when we talk about the triad, the stool, right? Where we've got product engineering and design, that's relatively well understood and well established. Although of course, many companies are still not able to execute on that effectively, but let's say you are right. executing effectively and you're talking about that. I feel there's an elephant in the room, which is what you didn't mention in all of that was marketing as a function, right? And in a way what you can think of as growth, like if, if you look at your definition is it's, it's nearly like product led marketing or product enabled marketing or whatever you would call it, right? It, it really focuses on the types of metrics that in a traditional org marketing would focus on. And the bit that I've always found difficult is not creating a cross-functional team, not even creating a cross-functional team that has metrics that are based on things like activations or on growth, but really integrating the marketing function into that effectively, which is a function that is less traditionally involved in these cross-functional teams and also is traditionally much more specialized. You know, one of the nice things about the traditional cross-functional team is you really only have three roles. You have engineers, you have product manager, you have a product designer. Whereas in marketing, you get a bit more of a, a menagerie of different specialized marketing roles, and you often can't bring all of them in. So again, I'm, I'm coming down to this very implementational point that I've personally struggled with and I've rarely seen executed well, which is how do we make this truly cross-functional when marketing is one of the key functions that we are speaking of? Yeah, and it depends on the company, right? So for Pinterest, right, for the entire duration I was there, marketing wasn't really part of that cross-functional team. And when we went beyond the triad, we called it going trapezoidal because that's apparently the strongest four-sided uh, shape. Um, it was analytics was the fourth leg of the stool, uh, not not marketing. But when um, I went to you know Eventbrite, very different. Um, so you know our growth team has PMs, engineers, designers, but it also has growth marketers who own channels like you know Facebook, Instagram, and 
you know, Google AdWords. It also has uh, creative um, content marketers. Um, so it's a little bit larger of a team, but again, they all share the same goals. They have optimized workflows um, to help them leverage those different skill sets to achieve those goals. So it depends on what your growth loop loops look like and, and, and what you're optimizing in the case of Eventbrite, right? We're optimizing things like SEO and we're optimizing things like performance marketing. Um, so that cross-functional group's a little bit larger. Um, and we have been able to unify pretty well. I've also worked with a CMO for five years. So there's a lot of deep trust there. Uh, you know, you don't always have the ability to, to replicate that uh, as simply, but that hasn't really been a big focus. There's definitely been some issues around like, oh, tactically, how does the project management work when there are just more people involved than say just engineers, designers, and, and PMs. So there, there's definitely some tactical struggles there, but none strategic, no, like a, no huge alignment issues there. But I think a more macro issue that cross-functional teams face, and it's definitely a weakness in the approach I talk about, is when you're a 20-person startup, that cross-functional team may have three, four people on it. Um, when you're Google, that cross-functional team has like 16 different functions. Half of them, you and I don't even know the names of. They're like made-up titles that only make sense at Google, right? And uh, if... You make all of those people fairly equal in the decision-making process of what to work on or what goals we're going to set, then naturally it's going to take 10x longer. There's all these extra nodes that have to connect and give their input. So what we try to do to balance that, and I can't speak for you know Google in this instance, but I can speak for uh, you know Eventbrite and some of the other companies I've worked with, is you have to really clearly outline, um, you know, we call it the, the DC model, right, at, at Eventbrite, right? Like who's driving this, who's approving, you know, who are you collaborating with and who's informed. And you're just not going to be the driver or even the collaborator on everything a team is doing when there's more uh, cross-functional team members. Like uh, you have to uh, be willing to not be in every meeting, uh, and trust that your peers are going to make things work or that there's a review process later on that you'll get looped in. And if you're really sensitive to that and try to shut everything down because you weren't involved in one of the projects, then things are going to go a certain way. Whereas if you have default trust that you'll be brought in if you need to be because everyone knows what your skill set is um, and that there's the appropriate person thinking you know, uh, correctly for the business who's driving that particular area, uh, then things can... Uh, flow relatively smoothly. So I do think as you add more legs of the stool, you know, to, uh, to, to use that uh, analogy, things go slower. Hmm. But when they hit, they hit harder um, because there's so much alignment. You basically know, you know, what you're going to deliver is going to have impact for the business. So it's, you know, that's kind of a classic, like more wood behind fewer arrows approach. Yeah. Um, but still, if you extend that to like, okay, well, now our cross-functional team is north of 10 people, you know, we have UX research and we have four types of marketers and we have, you know, um, a product designer and an, and an eng leader and a, and a PM and all this kind of stuff, then I think you need to like shrink the DC model um, for the individual part on that roadmap or strategy um, to make sure you're just not spending half your year building alignment to actually build a plan to go execute.
So this might be related, Casey, to a subject we've discussed in a previous episode around over-specialization, where we talked about avoiding having QA and architects and product owners and just having people really own a full scope. Perhaps traditional marketing departments have this kind of over-specialization problem and perhaps growth teams are just a little bit more like, let's just get shit done, whatever the right tool, whatever the right channel, whatever the right tactic, we're going to figure it out and we'll bring people in as we need. I, I don't know if I agree with that. When I think about the traditional marketing team um, and, and what they're capable of doing, uh, most of them have one particular skill set, which is not a specialization. It's managing agencies. That's what most marketers are groomed to do is project manage different agencies. The actual deliberate skill set um, inside a normal marketing team is not what you think it is, um, or at least in my experience. Um, and I think, you know, you know, at Uber or, you know, Eventbrite, that might be different. You might have like the very best, like media buyer for out of home, you know, in-house, but like in most cases that work just gets outsourced to agencies. So what I was finding with a lot of these marketing teams is like, wait, like who of you knows how to do things? Uh, <laughs> and you know, I wasn't finding a long list. Um, it's like, oh, I know how to go pay someone to do that thing, but I don't actually know how to do it myself, mm. um, which is not very helpful for startups, right? Not saying agencies are always bad, but 99% of the time they are. Uh, so I think the problem marketing faced, which certainly led to um, growth in, in some ways, is if you looked at the AMA definition of marketing, the American Marketing Association's definition of marketing around the time I graduated college, which I won't date myself for this podcast. I think we're all in a similar era. If you like <laughs> movies from the 80s, then yeah. I do. <laughs> but that definition, if you read it, just included everything. It was like two paragraphs long, all product development, all research to understand the user, all tactics to get more users, like just everything under the sun was included in marketing. Uh, and I think when tech emerged, it was just impossible for marketers to be good at all that stuff. Um, so what I think started happening with people in marketing and their title is they optimized for the sexiest components of that job. And the sexiest components of that job was always deep brand marketing. Uh, like I want to have ads that win awards at can, right? Um, and that was not the thing. Well, that was the thing that mattered for like CPG, right? That's not the thing that mattered for Facebook. That's not the thing that mattered for Google, right? That's not the thing that mattered for, for Pinterest. So I think those companies largely founded by engineers basically all made a bunch of stake hiring marketers thinking marketers would solve their growth problem, having some beautiful ad with no impact. And then usually firing that CMO like within a year or 18 months and realizing they didn't really get anything from it. And then started approaching the problem from first principles through engineering. Oh, let me put some attribution that I sent this email from Hotmail and see if that gets people to sign up for Hotmail, right? Let me, let me incentivize the referral, you know, on PayPal to see if that will get someone to set up their own account. Like all of these were like the early, you know, growth loops that were, that were built. Um, and that's how like growth teams emerged, you know, from, from, you know, my reading, uh, is people taking more of a first principles 
data-based problem solution orientation to like, I don't like where my metrics are. I need to figure out a way to get them higher. And this brand marketing thing's not measurable at all. And everyone tells me it's going to take three plus years to have any sort of impact in my growth. I don't even have that much funding. Uh, I need something that's have a shorter term impact. There's a lot of people searching on Google. Maybe I can optimize that, right? Um, you know, maybe I could figure out how to make AdWords work for me. Maybe I could figure out how to, um, you know, incentivize people to share with their friends. And, uh, you know, there are people that now specialize in that kind of stuff. But all the early people who built that stuff, none of them were viral specialists or SEO mm. specialists. There were people that had problems in their business and just, you know, tinkered away until they have found out some, found out some way to solve it, right? Um, so uh, I think that ability to just solve problems generically um, for your business um, is what we hope every employee has in a startup. Um, and uh, I think, yeah, there's a certain case of like, well, if the marketer has been, you know, schooled their entire career on doing AdWords and then the company doesn't make any money and therefore can't have a payback period, AdWords is going to help. That person needs to learn something else to help the business. But I think the bigger problem was like, there just wasn't a lot of tangible skills in marketing, you know, around, you know, the after, after the market crash, when people needed to like grow effectively without just like Super Bowl ads and stuff. Giving your employees equity is awesome, but managing that equity scheme yourself, not awesome. Cake Equity makes it easy to create and manage employee equity schemes for your global team. Check them out at cakeequity.com. I suspect that, and Chris and I do this a lot, like it sounds like we're disagreeing, but we're actually agreeing. <laughs> yeah, I think definitely the sort of the old school marketing, which is yeah, main skills managing agencies is, is a problem. But I, I feel like what I've seen and what Chris is alluding to is a specialization of, you kind of mentioned a couple of them, you know, I am a performance marketer, I'm a specialist at Google and Facebook ads, or I'm an SEO specialist, or I'm a life cycle email specialist. I know everything about Braze or Clevio or whatever. And uh, right. yeah, I, I mean, it, it makes it hard at, to know, okay, how do we bring those folks in? Or is it, is it a case to your point? I suspect this is maybe what you're getting at is it shouldn't be necessary to have such a high level of specialization at most stages. I would break it down into phases, right? Certainly the specialization approach that you brought up, Chris, is how apartments.com wanted to optimize my career. And I basically said, no, I want to learn everything. Products, marketing, all the channels, you know, all the optimizations, because I want to be able to put it all together. And that didn't really work for their career pathing super well. So I, I hear you on that. But if you're hired into a startup like I was at Grubhub and they're like, we think we found product market fit. We don't really know how we're supposed to acquire people to order food. Try stuff. Like, I don't care if you want to spend money on marketing. I don't care if you want to change the product. Just get more people to order food, man. Just like, please get more people to order food. Like, that's basically the, was the job description, right? That's a very different thing from a year and a half later when I've proven that sending an email to everyone in the city of Chicago gives me 2% more orders that week. And I know if I actually spent more hours on the week on it, I could turn that to five to 7% more orders per week and going and hiring the most badass person at exact target to build a 60 step workflow that optimizes that, right? Which I did and he was awesome. Uh, so there are time, there's time for specialists, 
when you actually know that the that particular specialty is worth it for the organization, right? So um, I did hire um, an AdWords specialist as well at Grubhub because he was driving 20% of our new users. Um, and I was good at it, you know, spending 20% of my time on it. But how much better could we be if we had someone who, A, was better than me to begin with and also was spending 100% of their time? Mm. That's not true for all cases, right? Um, uh, so it's not that you always want to have those specialists, but it, if you know that's the main thing, then I'm going to want to get as much expertise as I can in the building to optimize the main thing. When you don't know what the main thing is yet and you hire an email marketer, it turns out email doesn't matter for your business. Yeah, that those are going to be like pretty problematic unless that person's willing to say like, oh, it turns out email doesn't matter. I'm going to go learn, you know, this other thing that I think could have bigger impact. The, the pattern I think you're describing, and I think it's a generally good pattern to think about is that these cross-functional teams of, let's maybe call them entrepreneurial generalists, you know, really creative lateral thinkers, their job is to just solve the problem by any means necessary and to break ground and to find the tactics and techniques that work. And once having done that, and they break that ground to turn those techniques into programs, to put specialists in there who can rinse, repeat, optimize, and drive that over time while they're going to break new ground and do new zero to one activities. I think that's like a recursive pattern that should be happening at startups everywhere for finding new opportunities and finding new uh, optimizations along the way. Yeah. That's something that I think generally the audience should be paying attention to about the difference between breaking new ground, finding new ideas, hiring those generalists, those creative entrepreneurial thinkers, and then hiring specialists and putting them into those slots that have been discovered and need to be optimized. Yep. Yeah. Actually, that's a perfect segue to one of the other things we wanted to discuss, which is, I'd sort of put it as experimentation, but it's a bit broader than that, which is, I guess it's the other practical gap that I often see people face, and I include myself in this, when you put together a growth team. And there are two aspects to this. One is we talk about running experiments. What does it mean to run an experiment? Because again, it, it's something where a lot of people have different ideas and there's a sort of spectrum between the scientific method and just trying something and seeing if it works in some kind of hand wavy sort of sense. And there's a whole lot in between. And I feel as an art to deciding what we mean by an experiment in a particular context. So that's one thing I wanted to talk about. I'll, I'll Mention the other, which is really about, I've sometimes called it graduation or productionization. And I think that's where the segue comes in very well, which is, let's say you're a growth team. You're in a sense, you're prospecting, right? You're digging for gold and you've hit a rich seam of gold. And now you're like, okay, we've run our experiments. We've, we've got a very positive outcome. What now? Cause there are certainly some common anti-patterns, which is, oh, let's just never turn that experiment off or damn, let's turn it off and we're not sure what to do now. Or we got positive results, but we didn't design the experiment well enough to my previous point that we actually know what to do next. I'd love it if you could share your thoughts and some tips and eventually focus in on this idea of what happens once we've discovered something really effective within a growth team. Yeah, absolutely. Um, lots of, of meaty stuff there. So yeah, I think the scientific method starts with a hypothesis, right? So I'm never a fan of or I would say I'm rarely a fan of blind experimentation. Uh, like if you're starting a, a company like as founders, right? Uh, I don't really like the, oh, we're just going to try a bunch of things that fail fast. It's like, wait, you don't have like a hypothesis. Why are you starting a company if you like 
don't have a strong thesis you're willing to invest like 10 plus years of your time into. So I like having, you know, a vision um, and, you know, if you're starting a company and if you're, you know, starting a, a growth team, a hypothesis on something you think you can improve um, for the business um, and then going and, and, and running some tests in some form um, to see if you can actually, you know, make an improvement there, improve that metric, et cetera. And, uh, you know, the, the way I think about it is, um, it's like, okay, like blind experimentation is like being in a dark room and just like feeling for the door, like, Hey, you might find it and, and get out of the room. But like, uh, if you have like a strategy or a hypothesis, you can just turn the light on it be like, the door is right over there. Let's just walk right over to it, open it and go through it. And you definitely see a lot of growth teams that just haven't turned the light on. Uh, they're just running a bunch of random stuff. Most of those, as you mentioned, are designed to not possibly have impact. Uh, only a thousand users are going to see that in a month. Um, so the metric would need to go up like tens of thousands of percent, which is not even possible um, to, ha to have an impact, things like that. So, you know, really as a growth leader, you're trying to structure your teams to be like, okay, what's the strategy of your team? You're like, what are the particular, like, do you have a mission and vision for your team? Um, what particular focus areas do you have? What goals are you trying to achieve? What types of experiments are you planning to run to achieve that goal? And like, what data and research do you have that supports, you know, that being, a, um, those being potential solutions to the problem you're trying to optimize. Just to interrupt your flow there for a second, I'm, I apologize. I just want to highlight for the audience, two key things that you've done in your answer there that I think a lot of people outside of Silicon Valley don't do very well. The first is you said, I never like something. And then you corrected yourself and you said, I rarely like something. And this is something we touched on the previous episode about this kind of pragmatic grounded language and allowing for yourself to be wrong or allowing for room for equivocation there, which I find less experienced operators don't do. And the other thing you talked about is this, you know, although ostensibly you're a growth guy and ostensibly growth is about data and performance really resonate with what you talked about of this, like spray and pray, hoping for the data to reveal the answers to you. The analogy I use is it's like driving your car while staring at the GPS and not lifting your gaze and looking at the road and developing some kind of opinion or vision about the world. And I'm often finding myself telling startups like, what's your opinion? Like, what is your, what is your educated guess? What is your gut feel before, during, and after staring at this data? And so I'm really heartened to hear you talk about that, but I'm sorry, keep going. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think, I think it's an important point. Um, only SIFs deal in absolutes, right? Correct. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, there, there are edge cases for all of this stuff. And there's a lot of nuance that you will not see in the tweet storm version of these topics, which is, you know, why that's not necessarily a great medium for this type of discussion. So yeah, in, in terms of going back to experimentation, I don't care if it's actually an A-B test or if you threw it out there to see what happens, that all is dependent on the type of business you have, the amount of data you have, right? So, you know, I don't treat the like experimentation term like very strict, but you have a hypothesis and, and hopefully a strategy of what you're trying to achieve. Um, and by designing some sort of experiment around it, you're learning and you're getting closer and closer, you know, to the correct hypothesis or the correct strategy. I want yeah. to dig a little bit further because I've got kind of a, a rogues gallery of things that can go wrong when you talk about building this experiment. So the first that you touched on is 
okay, I've got an idea and we're just going to do something. And then like eyeball it at the end and we never had a well-articulated hypothesis. And so we don't know what to do with the data at the end. Uh, at the other end, what you can get into is a type of analysis paralysis where you're like, oh, here's my hypothesis. And then we're like, this is the metric that we need to test. And we, then we don't have that metric properly implemented. And then to run the experiment properly, we need to do a lot of product work. And suddenly a single experiment is like eight weeks worth of eng. And then you run the experiment for a while and you're like, huh, we haven't hit statistical significance. Or, well, the metric that we were actually tracking didn't move that much, but this other metric moved a lot. But of course, scientifically speaking, it's, it's invalid to perform that sort of post hoc analysis. And so on the one hand, you've got like crazy unscientific chaos. On the other hand, you've got this sort of overly scientific rigidity. And again, I, I feel like intuitively the art that you're talking about is sitting somewhere in the middle, but it can be really hard. I've felt this myself to, to find that right balance of what does it mean to run an experiment that is neither rigidly scientific nor grotesquely unscientific? And maybe if you've got some concrete pointers or tips on where to find that balance. Well, it's a muscle and a core competency that needs to be built inside a company over time, right? Um, when I joined Pinterest, there were a lot of failed experiments in that they were not designed correctly. Experiments don't really fail unless you don't learn anything from them. The way you don't learn anything from them is you don't have a strong hypothesis or you like trigger the experiment incorrectly. So it just ended up being a waste of time. And that definitely happened quite a bit when we started and then we just got better and better at it. And we learned and improved our process. We improved our experiment framework. Um, and that basically never happened, you know, the last year I, I was there, but it takes a muscle. And the important thing to remember about Pinterest, right, is Pinterest, that's a product with tens at the start, tens of millions of users and now like 500 million users, right? So the ability to throw something out there gets statistical significance across a bunch of metrics um, to understand what's really happening and how it impacts the business. And then if the data is confusing to go talk to some users and understand more of the why behind the what of the data is always possible. If you're a series A startup, that's never possible. So you're not going to like run an A-B test and wait six months for statistical significance. You're going to design your roadmap to only have bigger impact things. And if you can't see the change in your top level metrics, it was probably a waste of time. And that's just how you have to treat the, the types of investments you make at, at different stages. Or if you're, you know, an enterprise business that has, you know, uh, dozens of customers, but they all pay like millions of dollars, right? Like you're just not going to run an A-B test. I have this two by two on my blog based on what's the volume of customers you've got and what's their level of sophistication and how you get insight on if something is working is totally different depending on where you are in that quadrant, right? So if it's unsophisticated customers, a lot of volume, which tends to be consumer businesses, you just run A-B tests all the time and you look at the data all the time. And when the data doesn't make any sense, you lean into user research to talk to users directly. And that's the way that the big, you know, consumer tech companies operate. But if you're Snowflake, right? And you have hundreds of customers all paying you an absurd amount of money, you know, to be the core, like, uh, next gen, like data warehouse or, or whatever for your business. I doubt they've ever run an AB test at Snowflake. Uh, they talk to their customers directly. Their customers are smart. Their customers know what they want and they go build it and they charge them a ton of money for it. And the, the success of the test 
is whether people actually wrote them the check or not. Um, so they probably to predetermine that people are going to write those checks before they build, you know, kind of the next thing. And of course, those are two extremes and there's companies in between. And I think Eventbrite's one of those companies in between where, yeah, we run some A-B tests at scale on the consumer side a lot. And then on the B2B side of our product, which is, you know, event creation uh, and marketing, um, you know, we'll tend to like, you know, oh, do a rollout just to make sure that we're not like screwing something up. And we'll do a lot of research, talk to these customers uh, because they're not as sophisticated as enterprise customers, but they're also not consumers. We can learn a lot about their business. Um, and we kind of put all that together into a soup to figure out what to build and and, and if it uh, worked, um, which is, you know, a little bit harder. Um, but yeah, you know, I feel like people read uh, a blog post from some 24-year-old Facebook PM and then they're like, oh, I'm just going to go run all these experiments all the time like she does. And it's like, well, she's got the best experiment infrastructure in the world. Two billion users to experiment on. And your startup has neither of those and won't ever. So like you can't just blindly apply that way of working to your problem. You have to figure out maybe something a little bit less statistically perfect or, mm. or whatnot to, to get moving. Casey, I'm curious, particularly in that second case, you know, pre-product market fit or pre-scale, but maybe also generally, how much do you think talent, taste, and intuition play a role in this? Like at the highest levels, can this really be taught? Or is it like the director of a film or a great artist? Do some people have the right intuition and taste for this and some people don't? Or do you feel like that's unfair? Yeah, I don't know if I talk about it using the same exact terms as you. So I've written a post on my blog around um, A, how to measure product market fit, but, but B, the, the variation in approaches that you'll see talked about in the blogosphere, right? So there's the Eric Reese approach, which is like, oh, like you pick the market and then you just test, 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 and you fail fast and you learn. And then eventually you find something that, that hits. And then there's, you know, the Keith Raboy sort of thing, which is like, I want to hire a film director with a vision and I want them to produce the film and then market the film. Um, and I want hardcore vision. I don't care how long it takes to build. I'll fund it. Right. And, um, and of course, you know, I'm not really a fan of either of those extremes. Um, but if I bias, I'll bias actually a little bit more towards Keith's point of view. I don't think any startup succeeds without a ton of roadblocks in the way. So if you don't have that strong vision, you call it intuition. I might call it experience with the market um, to push through that and know that ultimately there's gold at the end of the, you know, rainbow or whatever. Um, then I don't think you get very far. Um, so I think, you know, having a strong vision, being flexible in the details, that vision can be taste-based, it could be intuition-based, or it could be, I worked in data engineering for 25 years and I know what these problems are. Any of those work great um, for, for me, uh, but I do think you're going to need something like that pushing you through, you know, in many cases, the years of work it takes to ultimately find product market fit. Yeah. Um, uh, and so, you know, there's no one flavor of this, you know, for me, um, uh, yeah. do I think, do I think if you and I spent a few years on it, do I think we could create some sort of incubator that meaningfully raised the success rate of founders starting businesses? Um, I bet you we could, and we could run an AB test. We could have some people named like, you know, 
uh, Yacy and, and, um, you know, Bis, you know, who are doing the same thing that don't have our experience. I bet you we come out on top, um, you know, picking random people into those groups. So I, I do <laughs> think you can teach a lot. Um, uh, but I think there is a little bit of a mindset there as well, where like some people, we could give them all the great advice in the world and they just won't have the hustle. They won't have the grit, um, uh, to get all the way to the finish line. And, you know, it's just, it's just, just a really hard thing to do. Start a company. This podcast in particular is at its best when we are able to take the inside baseball of Silicon Valley or some of these other tech hubs and apply it to the pragmatic reality of the ecosystems outside of those communities. Mm -hmm. And when you get a little further out from the inner circle, I don't mean the geography of Silicon Valley. I mean, the people who think that way, who have been schooled in that sensibility, the taste, the intuition, the experience, whatever you call it, starts to thin out pretty quickly. And I don't hear enough people inside the baseball game talking about the, the strength of that. They talk about the experiments, they talk about the creative leaps, they talk about the work they do, but some of it is taken for granted that they're surrounded by people who have developed that yes. skill, that muscle over time. So I think what people really underestimate and, you know, they talk about like, oh, Silicon Valley is dead or, or whatever is Silicon Valley has a 60 year network of effect of paying it forward and investing in entrepreneurs. And every other city region in the world has maybe been trying to do that for 10 years. It's a huge head start. We have people that have actually done it who with no reciprocation will tell you everything they learned. Um, I mean, I, you know, I did not start in this environment. I started my career in Chicago, which definitely did not have this type of environment. Right. And despite that, we built a multi-billion dollar company in Grubhub you know, had a $7 billion, you know, exit. Right. And then I came, uh, to Pinterest, which was located in Silicon Valley right after, and I didn't really know anyone. I knew a couple of the VCs that were on our board. Right. And within a year, I was able to meet everyone I wanted to be in the growth community. The ability of this environment to just like, oh yeah, like let's meet up, let's talk. Like, I'll tell you everything I know. Um, you don't see that in other industries and you don't see that in other geographies. And it's just the default way of working, not only in people giving their time, but the people who have made it just give their money back to the next startup. Like people don't do philanthropy at Silicon Valley. They do angel investing. It's like, I literally will give you my time and my money in a bundle to help, you know, your startup hopefully have the success that mine did. Um, uh, and it's a really cool thing. And it can be replicated in other environments and other geographies and other industries. But as I said, Silicon Valley has been doing it for like 60 years, uh, back when we were making chips. Um, and a, I think people outside the Valley miss that element. It's amazing you bring that up because our last episode that just shipped today, actually, as we record this is about pay it forward and about this abundance mindset and this network thinking. And so you've connected it to that last episode, which is really fantastic. It is this phenomena or this characteristic, this underlying bedrock that is not spoken about enough because it's taken for granted inside the baseball game, inside the Silicon Valley community and people outside the community don't even know it exists. And so it's really great that we're able to unearth that.
that is the purpose of this podcast. And why we were especially keen to speak to you, Casey, is what we see is we have in general in tech, both because of this paying it forward mentality and the rapid evolution of the industry, probably the largest gap between those who do it well and the average or the median quality of execution of any industry. So the median tends to be poor, the best tends to be the best, and the newer the discipline within tech, the more that is true. And I think I heard you mention, uh, yeah. I think it was maybe on, on Harry's podcast or, or Lenny's, that there are probably only a couple of hundred people who are true growth experts in the world. And they're highly networked with each other and within a fairly small circle. You know, we're, we're based in Australia, but this could be true at any secondary tech hub. Right. There's tech hubs all over the place. Most of them don't have those 50 years behind them. If there are a couple of hundred people in the world, we'd be lucky to have one or two people who have that true insider information on this evolving field and art of growth. So any small contribution we can make to accelerating that, that's really what we're trying to do here. Yeah. Makes a ton of sense. Right. And, um, look, it doesn't mean you can't build your startup there and be successful. Canva is one of the best startups, you know, in the world. Um, and, you know, they built it in Australia, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but one of the things they did is they reached out to people like me um, to, to get advice, right? Um, to make up for some of the things that they couldn't find in the ecosystem. And I think they're one of the companies that I've seen do that most aggressively. Um, and I think, it's, I think it's helped them a lot. Uh, and, but a lot of the companies I advise like aren't in Silicon Valley, right? They're in Mexico City, Toronto, you know, Sydney. Um, and, uh, I think that's, that's a good strategy. Um, I think now with remote work, right. You have the ability to hire people a little bit more all over the place. Um, that's going to help. Um, but yeah, it's possible to, to do this everywhere. Like we, you know, for Grubhub, we had Chuck Templeton on our board. He was the founder of OpenTable in San Francisco. Um, it was a really big help when you're also building a food related marketplace to have someone who's built the first one on the internet. Right. Um. So, so those types of things can, can really matter. And I, I encourage, um, you know, founders to, to seek that out where, where they can, but yeah, it's an, it's an emerging, uh, there's a lot of emerging disciplines and what I would say, and I think this is also something founders get confused about is just because a company is really good at one thing, doesn't mean they're not below the median at a bunch of other things related to building mm. a, a company or building a startup. Right. So, you know. Each, each of these startups has their strengths and weaknesses. So it's not that the best practices of building a company are unevenly distributed between companies. They're unevenly distributed between functions of companies. Like they might have a really awesome legal department, but can't ship product. They might uh, have a really awesome growth team, but don't know how to build new things. Uh, so you have to like try to figure out like which of these companies is good at what um, and then start to take their best practices specifically about the things they're good at, because, you know, I've seen a lot of companies I haven't seen, I haven't seen many companies that are really nailing it on everything. They tend to have like one or two strengths and then some very apparent weaknesses as well. It's a good takeaway is like lean into your strengths and also try to make up for your weaknesses wherever you can and, and know them. So just going back to, uh, the discussion of experimentation, I think. The key takeaway of, of what you were saying before then, which actually resonated a lot with me, you talked about it being a muscle that you build up. And what I suspect is most companies give up before they've ever built the muscle. You say, okay, we're going to have a growth team. We're going to run a bunch of experiments. And the first year is basically a shit show where one way or another, 
you, you don't ship as many experiments as you like. Most of them fail in the sense that you mean, right? Which is they're inconclusive. You're not sure what to do with the data, but you slowly get better. And I did see that at Airtasker where I worked previously. We had a growth team that for quite a long time was struggling with this stuff, but they started to hit their stride and they started to deliver wins. So that was really nice to see, but it, it is a difficult thing to get an entire executive team across your resource constraint and to have a team that is perhaps not succeeding on the terms that were set for it for quite some time is difficult. And it's of course difficult for the team's morale as well. Yeah. When I'm talking to actual growth leaders inside a company, um, a lot of my counsel will be a bit different than if I'm talking to the founder. If I'm talking to that growth leader, I am biasing them extremely heavily towards not necessarily working on the biggest growth opportunity, but on the one that can show the quickest return. Mm. There are things that just take time to unlock, even for the smartest growth people in the world, onboarding. It just takes a while. The cycles of iteration are longer because you have to actually see if the retention improves in the cohorts. It's not a great place to start if you're trying to build credibility. Conversion, however, those experiments can be run so quickly. They're never the most technical to do. Um, it's a good place to, to put some wins on the board and show the validity of this approach. Uh, SEO, another place, not a great place to start. It takes a while for Google to index the changes and trust you and all of that kind of stuff. So there are these areas that are good for iterating and proving value even if they're not where you're going to get the biggest win long-term. And I think conversion and virality are two examples of that, though it, it depends on the business. And then there's these areas that will just take longer to unlock that you probably want to go after once you know that credibility is there and you have the buy-in to maybe take a year, you know, to unlock it. At Pinterest, over a year and a half, we doubled the activation rate of the business. Uh, but there was no like silver bullet we got in month three. Like we just kept iterating and, you know, many things failed. And then, oh, that fourth experiment hit and we got 5% there. That seventh experiment hit, we got another 10%. And you just mm. kept like building on that. Um, but again, like I mentioned, my first experiment uh, at uh, Pinterest, conversion experiment, two days yep. of work um, to, to show that we could have a big impact and that there was, there was actual investment to be made here. Got it. Very cool. Okay, so let's move on to the question of productionization or graduation of successful experiments? So we have a very particular approach that we take um, to how we build products at Eventbrite, you know, informed by, you know, my previous experience, uh, but also informed by the situation Eventbrite was in um, when I joined full-time, which is um, first we start with the, the idea of like a concept review, which is like, hey, what is the problem you're trying to solve for which user? What information do we have, data or research that shows that this is a real problem? What solution do you want to, to implement? Um, and what other solutions did you evaluate, right? And then the last question is like, well, what's your measurement plan? Like, how are you going to prove that this worked or didn't work? Um, and uh, we go through that. And, and if we approve um, that solution, one of the things we talk about, which I don't see talked enough about at a lot of other companies is... Okay, what's the confidence that this is a real problem and the confidence that this is the right solution? If the confidence is low that it's the right problem, then we're not going to actually build something. We might do some prototypes. We might talk with some users to try to build more confidence. 
if we have the right confidence in the problem, but not the right confidence in the solution, that's where we'll build a minimum viable feature or a minimum viable product, uh, where, you know, the, uh, the scalability of the tech might not be the greatest, the adherence to the design standards, you might cut some corners and then we'll run that as some sort of experiment, you know, some sort of rollout and we'll collect data and we'll see, um, if this thing actually works. But if we have a lot of confidence in both the problem and the solution, usually informed by previous minimum viable products, and minimum viable features, then you are not allowed to cut corners. Build that thing scalably from the start, adhere to all the design standards, build, ship at the highest quality, ship it in increments if you can, of course, but like go build it right. Um, uh, so when, to go back to your question around experiments, a lot of what we do when it's in that middle category where it's minimum viable feature, minimum viable product is we have a phase of a product development process called the results review. And at Pinterest, we call it the experiment review. And in that process, we're like, okay, there's that thing. We ran some sort of experiment. Here's what we learned. Here's what the data says. And here's what we want to do. Ship, iterate, or kill, right? And if what you want to do is ship, then the next question I'm going to ask is, what technical or design debt did you accumulate to, to build this? And how are you going to address it to ultimately ship to 100%? Because we have a zero tolerance policy of like you shipping crappy code or crappy, you know, designs or whatnot. Um, and look, that's not going to make sense for every startup to implement, but, um, you want to make sure the person building the idea can actually ship it, um, and can ship it in a way that's scalable for the entire, um, for the entire like business. Right. And so some of these growth teams are set up where like the only thing they know how to do is hack, 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 and then they can't productionize. They can't build it scalably. And that was definitely the way Pinterest was set up a bit when I joined. So one of the things we had to change was we had to take control over our code. So we basically said, hey, we're the growth team and here are the levers we use to drive growth and we're going to own that code end to end. The logged out experience, we're going to own the whole thing. Every sharing flow, we're going to own all of that. Uh, the, on, the first 30 days of the product experience, which is the activation flow, we're going to own that experience entirely which means, you know, we're not going to have this thing where we went and shipped an experiment and now some other core product team is cleaning up, you know, all the technical that we created for the next six months. Like that's not a thing, uh, that's going to work here. Um, and I, and I think a lot of companies get caught up with that where they haven't really, if they built like their first iteration of their growth team, they don't have a team that can actually like ship real enduring code, in which case you're like, you're not really going to change anything or they're not taking the responsibility of the impact they have with their experiments. So both at Pinterest and Eventbrite, there's basically like a zero tolerance policy that it's like, no, like you own this area, you have to make it scalable. That's never going to be like some other engineer's job, but yeah. And I've gotten other companies and realized that they don't do that. And I'm like, oh, this is, this is crazy to me. Like, how do you operate by like just shipping your trash to another team and expecting them to like cleaning it up? Like, how does that supposed to work? <laughs> yeah, this happens all over the place and, and companies that have ostensibly rotated to being cross-functional full stack teams that own a mission or a problem or a pillar, you dig a little more deeply and you realize, oh wait, they still have these little agencies inside the company that are kind of half building things and throwing them over the fence to someone else. And you're like, what are you doing? Stop, stop doing that. That's so mm. bad. But you have to dig into the yep. details because they've read the blog posts that got the high level guidance, but they still implemented it 
in the wrong way. It's so yeah, interesting. I, I think the reason it happens with when it happens with good intentions on, on growth teams, especially it's because the growth teams are like, we're about a cadence of rapid experimentation. Every sprint, we're running a bunch of experiments and then you get the hits and you're like, oh shit, it's going to take us six weeks to productionize that. And then we lose our momentum. We lose our mojo. And so therefore what we want is a team who's just always trying new things. And when they find something good, they give it to someone else. Now I'm inclined to agree with you that that's unhealthy, but I think that's how it happens. Yeah. And that's something I don't, and you, and you noticed, I did not mention experimentation in my definition of growth, um, because I think people have, um, equated, yeah, oh, growth, they're the experimentation team. Um, and it's like, no, I don't believe that at all. Are they going to be more likely to leverage experimentation as one of the tools in their toolkit? Yes. But if they mm. can't build scale, if they can't build architecture, I spent nine months at Pinterest rebuilding our email infrastructure. That's not an experiment. That's mm -hmm. the thing we needed to do to scale mm -hmm. how well our email and push notifications work. And you know what? After we built it, we hit all of our goals in like two weeks for the year on email. Um, but it was nine months of like really deep technical work to get there. Um, and yeah, like if you're not setting up a growth team that can do that work, A, you're not going to build trust with the rest of the engineers at the company because uh, you're not doing real, real engineering work. Um, uh, and two, you're not going to be able to like get the full impact of what you're doing because you're kind of offloading sometimes over half of the problem to someone else who like isn't necessarily bought into your strategy or, you know, has their own goals, whatever. So that's one of the things I think we did really healthily at Pinterest is we said like, nope, if it's in our area of interest, we own the whole thing. Um, we're going to make it work scalably. We're not going to accumulate technical debt or design debt. Um, like we truly own it. Um, and I think that's what you see most mature growth teams do is like they have platform teams inside of growth, you know, like in our case at, at Pinterest, like that we're managing the SEO experimentation tool. We owned that. The creation of new landing pages. We owned that. That's infrastructure that has to work well. Um, you know, uh, things like you know, spark post, right. Which is like the message transfer agent that makes sure emails get delivered. Like, you know, managing that type of stuff effectively, uh, is important to getting the full value out of the team. Just to put a very fine point on it. I don't think that's just good practice for a growth team. I think it's good practice for all teams with missions throughout the company. And that's something that's, that's often lost. So yeah, the, sa the same could be true for like a zero to one product team. And you're like, oh, we have this cool product that has product market fit. And then the rest of the company is like, but we can't expose any more people to it or it will fall down. Then no, you don't have product market fit. Like you didn't do the work uh, to get there. And I've definitely seen that happen a, a lot as well. You're just you're just playing product at that point. You're not actually doing product, right? Um, but yeah, it's more common than it should be. And, and hopefully as you know, we continue to get more sophisticated as an industry, you'll see it less and less. I do think it's a very common misapprehension. And again, we talked about the term growth hacking and the fact you don't like it. I think that's another thing that feeds this misconception is that, yeah, growth people that go in there, they hack some shit up, they, they do some little things, they move fast, they're always, always moving, right? And they're never stopping, pausing and consolidating. So yeah, I completely agree, but I, I feel it's a very common misconception. I think another very common misconception that I thought we could do a little bit of salty myth busting on, because you mentioned MVPs and 
It's funny. We, we talk about MVPs and I remember, you know, I've got an engineering background and a couple of years ago, the guy who invented the null pointer or the null reference back in the 1960s, he said that is the most expensive mistake. He called it a trillion dollar mistake because by inventing null pointers, he has caused more security holes, more stability issues than anything else. And I kind of think, I don't know Eric Reese, but I, I feel for him because I believe he invented the term MVP and <laughs> I feel that the term MVP is responsible for a lot of mistakes, a lot of errors, and it is profoundly a misunderstood term. And, you know, you were using it before in the correct sense, I believe, which is as a type of experiment, but I think most people think MVP is like the crappy V1 of their product. So I'd love to get from your point of view as a real practitioner in product and growth, how you think about MVPs and what it is. You talked about tools in your toolkit. I love that framing in general. We don't talk about toolkits enough. What is the role of the MVP or the minimum viable feature as a tool? So uh, a couple months into uh, my time at Eventbrite, I, I basically just put this presentation together to be like, stop doing MVPs. You don't even know what this framework is for. And it doesn't match any of the use cases you're trying to solve for right now. Um, and I've adapted that uh, into a blog post um, called Reducing the MVP Mindset. Um, uh, the... The concept of a minimum viable product was a built for a product like launching a new product, which is a bundle of many features. Um, and then when you get into most of these companies, people are like, oh, we're launching the MVP. And you're like, what are you launching the MVP for? And you're like reporting. And it's like, well, a reporting's not a product. It's a feature. B you're supposed to launch minimum viable products for something you're not sure is a good solution. Are you really not sure that reporting is a good solution for your product? If you are, then you shouldn't be cutting corners. You shouldn't be like designing it really scrappily like the framework suggests. You should be building the right thing. Um, and we call that phase development in, in uh, contrast to MVP or, or, or MVF. Um, so, you know, uh, it's a tool um, for ambiguity uh, where you're really not sure if you're going the right direction. So you don't want to dedicate six months of building that may be wasted. You want to get something out early that doesn't necessarily need to reach millions of users to validate a lot of your hypotheses. And if those hypotheses are already validated, you shouldn't be building a crappy V1, as you mentioned. You should be building a great V1 because you know the type of impact it will have for your customers and the business. So, you know, we, we basically tried to retire that framing for a lot of the products that was being built around and revamp the product development process to say like, oh yes, it actually is appropriate for you to do an MVP here, which is like 5% of the time. Um, and the rest of the time, we're going to talk about different frameworks that make more sense for the, the problem and solution space you're in. Yeah. You know, all of these things tend to get bastardized, right? Like agile, oh, the amount of cruft built around that, um, is, is obscene. Um, and people are just religious about it. And, you know, even though agile is basically anti-religion around waterfall. So like, um, mm -hmm. it's just crazy how these things will get yeah. twisted. It's, it's worse. It's worse than just bastardized. As you say, they become their own opposite. And I think agile is a brilliant example, but the MVP thing is the same. I feel because what's happened is MVP, just to be very explicit here and, and tell me if you disagree, it is an experimental tool. It is a tool for, as you say, testing a hypothesis. And when we're talking about minimum viable product, we're talking 
say viable for what it's viable for testing that hypothesis. And so it's something you do when you have an intermediate level of certainty about something more than just something that you would run a casual experiment, but less than something that you have conviction as a real product. People now use it to mean kind of the opposite, which is a bad version of phase development. It's like, I'm building the MVP for this. Excuse to cut scope. Oh, Hey, I love cutting scope, but I just think the term MVP it's lost its meaning and it's a shame because it, it had a meaning that was useful. I care a lot about language because when we're talking about things, it's all we've got. And so when people use terms and they have different meanings, it can become really harmful, really fast. So Casey, it's been really fantastic having you on the show. Thank you for taking so much of your time with us. I think the audience is going to get a hell of a lot out of this. Is there some sites, resources, projects that you'd like to point our audience to, to make sure that they can get more amazing Casey content? Uh, sure. So I've built three programs for Reforge on um, uh, growth and product strategy. Uh, so I always, um, you know, tell people who are looking to learn more about the stuff to, to access the um, the great frameworks there. You mentioned Brian Balfour. He's the founder and has built a lot of his best frameworks into the program as well. Um, and then some of this lighter weight stuff we talked about is, uh, you know, I've written about on my blog, certainly spent some time talking about MVPs or how to build growth teams. And that's at caseyaccidental.com. We'll get that in your show notes. So like Chris said, thanks for being so generous with your time. I mentioned to Chris before we started, I was a little bit nervous. You're definitely a celebrity and a thought leader in your space. So we really appreciate you taking the time to, to speak with us today. And I, I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. I don't know about celebrity, but I appreciate having the chance to talk with you guys. <laughs> okay. Thanks very much, Casey. Cheers. Now people contact us and ask how to work with us. So Yanev, how can they work with you? I am pretty much full-time on my startup circular and the rest of my time tends to be soaked up by this podcast. But if you've got a short, punchy bit of help that you need where you think I'm just the right person for it, I'm certainly open to having a discussion. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm very active there. And also on Twitter, I'm at YBernstein. How about you, Chris? I'm at Chris Saad on all the social media, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, you name it. You can also find out about my advisory work where I do work with a small handful of companies with one-on-one -on -one advisory engagements at chrissaad.com slash advisory. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app, rate us, review us, share us with your networks because that's the way we get the word out and ultimately help more founders be more productive with their startups. So we'd really love it if you could share us with your networks. And we'll catch you in the next one. Back when I worked at Google, one of my favorite parts of the developer experience was a tool called Code Search. It made developing the code base a breeze. So you could understand what was going on so much faster. Seriously addictive stuff. And I've missed it ever since. Until now. Sourcegraph's code search functionality is built on the exact same technology as Google's code search, so that you can give your software engineers a Google-level productivity boost. Check them out at sourcegraph.com slash the startup podcast.